Good morning. I want to say happy Father's Day to all of those fathers out there. Also, um, if you have children fifth grade and down, uh, you may choose to take them to Gospel Project now, uh, or you may choose to keep them here. That's up to you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, as Tad said, my name is Mike, and I serve on staff here directing family ministry, uh, but today it's my honor and privilege to share God's Word with you. This morning we'll be looking at, together at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5, as part of our ongoing series through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. Or if you're using one of the Bibles here in the room, those blue Bibles, you'll find this passage on page 572, which is the same page we were on for the past few weeks, and we will be on for a couple more weeks. Last week, Brandon Remus uh, shared with us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we, he showed us this, this magnificent soaring hymn of who Christ is, followed by a paragraph describing the Colossians' union with Christ because of their faith in Him. And he's going to go on in the rest of chapter 2 and 3 to elevate Christ. But in these two par paragraphs, it seems at first that he, that he is focusing, taking the shift, shifting his focus off of Christ and onto himself. Well, why would Paul do that? Before we read the text to answer that question, let's consider briefly the situation that Paul was writing to and the overall message of his letter. It had come to Paul's attention in Rome by Epaphras that this church, the church at Colossae, and the churches in the area around Colossae were being exposed to false teaching. These false teachers were using very persuasive, philosophical arguments to try and convince these new converts to Christianity that yeah, faith in Christ is fine and good, but you really need more uh, to really be fulfilled. Paul's goal in writing this letter is to show them and us that for those who are in Christ, fulfillment is found in Christ alone. As Paul prepared to get into the heart of his teaching on this topic, he pauses here in these two paragraphs to remind the Colossians why they should listen to him, this guy they've never met. So let's read what he says together. As we read this passage, anytime we read Paul, um, especially if we haven't read it in a while, it can kind of be like finding that ball of Christmas lights in your, in your garage. It's just a big tangle. You know there are lights in there, but it's hard to see anything but the tangle when you first look at it. So... This can kind of sound that way when you first read it, especially if you haven't read it in a while. We're going to try and untangle that and find the lights in this passage. Let's read it together. This is the Word of God. <clears throat> now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. <clears throat> for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. First glance, it might seem that Paul's focus is on himself. He uses the word I and me and my a lot in this passage. But as we focus in more carefully, we see that what Paul is really talking about in verses 24 through 29 is his apostleship. The apostles were those men who had been specially equipped and given special authority uh, in the early church to lead. They had were all men who had seen Christ and they were given this special ministry of apostleship. Paul is one of them. Uh, the main idea of this text, I think, is that because his apostleship is genuine, Paul's message is true. Christ in you is what you need and all you need. So why does Paul say that these Colossian believers should, should listen to him? and by extension, that we should. Well, first, because his ministry, his apostleship, is Christ-commissioned. Look again at verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. <clears throat> Some questions came to my mind when I first read this, and they may come to your mind as well. Why would Paul's suffering be any kind of evidence that his apostleship is genuine? And how does his suffer benefit the church at Colossae? But most of all, what in the world does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, let's take that last question first because I think it will help us answer the other two. We know that when Paul said he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's inflections, afflictions, not inflections, we know that he didn't mean that Christ's suffering on the cross was somehow insufficient and that he was completing that. How do we know that? Because he just told us in verse 20 that Christ had reconciled all things to himself by the blood of his cross. So he doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? What he means is that his suffering was an extension of Christ's suffering. In other words, Paul's hardships, his trials, all that he suffered for the gospel are a continuation of the pattern of suffering that Jesus himself faced. The world opposed Jesus. It opposes those who represent him. Paul is in prison as he wrote this for what he preached about Christ. 
Well, how does his suffering in prison benefit these believers in Colossae? Paul's suffering is a way for the suffering of Christ to be real for this church. They had heard about Jesus' suffering and death, but they had not experienced it. This is what is lacking in them. Paul's apostleship models Jesus' suffering for them. How is his suffering evidence for the authenticity of his apostleship? The Greek word he uses for filling up is only used this one place in the New Testament, and it means to take one's turn in filling something up. Paul is taking his turn in filling up the sufferings of Christ in his leadership role as an apostle. Suffering is a vital part of what it means to be an apostle. So Paul understood that his suffering was a, a validation, a proof of his calling in Christ to be an apostle. In Acts 9.16, God had told Ananias about Paul, saying, He is, my, is a chosen instrument, uh, instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of, the God, of my name. This is why Paul rejoices in his suffering. It's evidence for him and for the church that he's doing what Christ has called him to do. In a sense, living out the suffering of Christ for them. And it was an honor for him to share in Christ's suffering. Those who are called to lead in the church are still called to suffer in some ways for the sake of the gospel. And as they do, they are also continuing the pattern established by Jesus himself. Suffering for the gospel in our leaders helps us to know that suffering is to be expected in following Christ. The way up is the way down. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Paul is also implying by saying this that you should listen to me because I'm suffering in the same pattern of Jesus and these false teachers, they're not suffering at all. In verse 25, Paul goes on to say that he considers his apostleship to be a specific stewardship given to him by God. Look at verse 25. I became a minister, which means servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. A stewardship here means a commission, a, an assignment a specific charge given by God. The assignment Paul was given was to make known, the word of God fully known. So Paul is not asking this church at Colossae to submit to his authority based on his credentials or his skill or his personality, but based on the commission given him by Christ and on the suffering of Christ that he's endured patiently and faithfully, which validates his calling. What was this word of God specifically given to Paul to make fully known? It was the mystery that had been revealed about Jesus Christ. So Paul's apostleship is completely Christ-centered. Let's look again at verses 26 through 28, where he talks about this mystery. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God, has, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. When Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean a riddle to be solved the way we might use the word mystery today. Paul is not saying that he's like Sherlock Holmes and he's figured something out that no one else could because of his brilliant deductive reasoning. No. He's, not also, he's also not using the word mystery the way most people in his generation would have understood it. In the first century, the world was full of mystery religions, which all promised some hidden philosophy or ritual by which you could attain enlightenment. But there was, those were revealed to a special elect few. Paul's not talking about that. He says here that the mystery he intends is something that was hidden in the past, but which has now been made completely manifestly clear to all of God's people, his saints. It was not some philosopher who had revealed this mystery, but God himself who had chosen to make it known. <clears throat> it is a richly glorious mystery. It is the mystery of Christ in you. Christ dwelling in people who've put their faith in him, even Gentiles. Imagine the wonder that Paul experienced when God first made this, this idea clear to him. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. A few de decades earlier in his life, Saul, as he was known then, would have found it inconceivable that the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, would have had anything to do with these people in this small town in Asia. Unthinkable that Christ would actually dwell in them. But now, by the power of Christ in him, he understands himself called specifically to reveal this very mystery. It's amazing. To a church like Colossae, struggling with false teachers and the temptation to return to their former pagan ways of life, this message was very clear. Christ in you is your hope of glory. Jesus is not a means to a better life. He, if we're in Christ, he is our life. Union with Christ is it. Christ in you is what you need, and it's all you need. The knowledge of this revealed mystery, Paul says, is not intended for a privileged few, but for all who are in Christ. In verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The repetition Paul uses is his way of emphasizing the access to the knowledge of Christ that all who are in Christ have. Equal access. In contrast to the way f these false teachers revealed their secrets to only a few, the initiated few. Paul's desire is that they be made mature in Christ. 
This word mature can also be translated perfect. We who are in Christ are being perfected, sanctified, degree by degree into the image of Christ. And when Christ returns, he will be presented his bride. Those of us who are in Christ, perfect in Christ. This is what Paul is working toward. But notice that Paul didn't struggle for the maturity of believers in his own strength. He says that his apostleship was empowered by Christ. Look at verse 29. For this I toil. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. Paul is working hard for them, but the work is done with all Christ's energy that Christ powerfully works in him. <clears throat> Christ in Paul is the power that fuels his ministry. It's what keeps it going. It's what actually accomplishes it. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you are in Christ, you are not meant to power the ministry or ministries God has given you in your own strength. Whether your ministry is Parenting your children towards faith in Christ, discipling your roommate, serving preschoolers on Sundays, caring for elderly shut-ins, directing family ministry, facilitating a gospel community, sharing the gospel with international students at ASU, whatever God has given you to do for the body. Your ministry can only be fruitful if it is empowered by the Spirit and not by you. Paul was completely incapable of his task as an apostle in his own strength. But with all his energy, that he powerfully works, the Spirit of Christ accomplished much in Paul. The same is true for all of us who are in Christ. So as we look back on what Paul has said so far, he's asking this church at Colossae to heed his instructions as their Christ-appointed apostle based on the suffering he's endured for Christ and for them, the stewardship given him by Christ, his message, his Christ-centered message, the goal that he had of their perfection in Christ, and because of the evident labor that he was putting in for them. So in this next paragraph, in chapter 2, he shifts his focus from his apostleship in general to the churches in and around Colossae specifically. Here he's showing them that his apostleship includes equipping the whole body, even those whom he has not met. He begins by telling them that he's fighting for them in verse 1. Look at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. The Greek word translated struggle here would normally be used in the realm of athletics in terms of, in the sense of compete, wrestle, or fight. Paul says he's in a great struggle for them. It's as if Paul is saying, hey guys, I'm not fighting against false teachers. 
nearly as much as I'm fighting for you because you're a part of the body of Christ. This is what leadership in the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Whether it be an apostle in the first century or elders today, good shepherds fight for their flock. They, like Paul, are not content that any should stray away. I believe that Church on Mill has elders like that. They are fighting a spiritual battle for you. But church, this should also be true of all of us who are in Christ, that we fight for one another, that we contend for the faith together, helping each other to continue to follow Christ. Who's fighting for you? Who are you fighting for? Is there someone in the room that you know knows that you're fighting for them? God has given us each other so that we might help each other follow Christ and abide in him. Well, Paul was fighting for his brothers and sisters at Colossae. But what does he say are the goals for his struggle? He tells us in verses 2 through 4. Look at those verses again. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I see at least four things that Paul hopes to accomplish in his struggle for them. One, that their hearts may be encouraged or strengthened. Two, that they would be knit together in love. Three, that they would reach the, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God. That is a mouthful, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. And that they would not be deluded by plausible arguments. So Paul's goal, goal is not to prove his superior knowledge or to win their support or to convince him how right he is. All of his goals are about them and helping them. Paul intends his letter to be a source of encouragement to them, that they be strengthened in their faith in Christ. He says he wants them to be knit together or fused together in love. Why? Well, he says to reach, which can really probably means more like so that they may reach the full, rich of fullness Rich, riches of full assurance. I told you it was a mouthful. To reach the riches of full assurance of knowledge and understanding of God, which is Christ. According to Paul here, the unity in the, in the spirit that they have, which is expressed by their love for one another, is actually the means to their reaching the full understanding and knowledge of Christ. This is... Not very intuitive for us, but get this. Our love for one another in the body of Christ is the key to our reaching a full understanding of Christ. So, an individual believer, disconnected from the body, lacking in love and unity, will not be able to reach the full knowledge of Christ. We are meant to abide in Christ together. 
One of the primary ways that we know that we are in Christ is that we love one another. 1 John 3, 14 tells us, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Let me be blunt here. If you claim to follow Jesus, but you're not connected to a local body of believers where you can love the brothers like this, you are fooling yourself. And you are leaving yourself wide open to being deluded by plausible arguments from the world. Outside the fellowship of the body, the arguments of the world are going to sound more and more plausible and more and more right to you. Because you will not be able to reach the full understanding and knowledge of Christ, the very thing that can prevent you from being deluded. What is the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ? It is that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the key to all wisdom and knowledge. Not most wisdom and knowledge. He says all wisdom and knowledge. How will the Colossian believers possibly be, avoid being deluded? By striving together in love for the rich, full of assurance of understanding Christ. When we, together, understand who Christ is, what he has done, and who we are in him, then we will not be persuaded by the world's plausible arguments, philosophies, and ideas. As Paul concludes this section, he reminds them that he too is connected to them in love. And so he feels a deep kinship with them, even though they've, he's never met most of them. He says in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is not using some breezy nicety. Hey, I'm with you guys. We're all in this together, right? That's not what he means. He means literally, I am with you in the spirit. There's only one. The same spirit of Christ that indwelled Paul indwells them. And so they are bound together in love. Today, those of us who are in Christ still feel connected in this exact same way to those in Christ whom we've never met. It's the unity of the Spirit in us that, that works this. So that we feel kinship for believers in Scotland, in Italy, in Thailand, in Mesa, in places all over the world. And we rejoice to see their faith in Christ. We even feel kinship to those who have gone before us who were in Christ, like Paul and these believers at Colossae. The application of this text for us today is pretty much the same as it was for those who first read it. Because his apostleship is genuine, Paul's message is true. Christ in you is what you need, and it's all you need. For those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians, Paul is reminding us here that we must, we must center our lives on Christ, just as he centered his apostleship on Christ. 
he must become increasingly the object of our lives. Paul said of himself in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. In John 15, Jesus described this as abiding in him. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you will not find fulfillment in your career or your children or your marriage or your friendships or your hobbies or your skills or your talents. You won't only find fulfillment in Christ, nowhere else but Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and you already have him. When we really come to understand, really come to understand that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, then we'll want to pursue Him. We'll want to know Him better. But not only that, we begin to see that Christ must be the filter, the matrix through which every decision, every relationship, every thought, every word, every experience, every temptation, everything is processed. It's part of what the song means when it says, Be thou my vision. But not, this is not to say that we are striving to be like Christ. It, the question isn't, what would Jesus do? The question is, what does he want to do in and through me? He is the power to equip us to live for him and to produce good work. How does abiding in Christ work? Well, as I renew my mind with the, rich, the riches of understanding of Christ and become more and more fully assured of who he is, the power of his Holy Spirit is transforming me more and more into the image of Christ, empowering me to live by his power for his glory, rooted and built up in him. This is how I can abide in Christ. This is why Christ in me is such a big deal. For those who may be here, who would not call yourself a Christian, who are not in Christ, you may not even be sure you know what that means. Hear this. Paul's words are reliable and true. This gospel that he preached is the message you need to hear. Whatever you think you need in your life, Christ in you is what you really need and all you need. It starts with knowing more about him and agreeing to the things that Scripture says about him, but that's not enough. It's not enough to know who he is or to know about him or to agree with that. He must dwell in you. The good news is he can if you will repent of your sin, sin is rebellion against God. It's that desire that you have to be the ruler of your own life. If you will turn away from that and acknowledge Jesus Christ as your rightful Lord and put all your hope in him, his spirit will come into you, transferring you from the domain of darkness into his kingdom and giving you the hope of glory. If you'd like to know more about that or have questions about that, you can come see me after we're done here or talk to almost anyone in the room. They'd be happy to talk with you and pray with you about that or direct you to someone who can. 
This is the mystery that was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed in Christ. Christ in us. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in this morning, that is what you need, and it's all you need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonder of the idea that you can come and dwell in us. I thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are in Christ, you have come into us and are changing us to be more like you, empowering us to live by you, giving us your righteousness. Father, I pray that if there are those here who have not yet come to be in you, that you would show them this morning through your word that that's what they need. Father, we thank you for Paul's words of encouragement to us, and we thank you that he was working not only for them, but for us also. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.